Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, we're looking at AI or artificial intelligence and how it's likely to change general practice in the coming years. I'm joined by GP and academic Dr. Ben Brown from the University of Manchester, whose research looks at how AI and machine learning could support healthcare professionals and patients. Ben is currently involved in developing a new AI system that helps support triage of GP online consultations. Both the government and the Labour Party have touted AI as a possible solution to the NHS's workforce challenges, arguing it could free up clinicians so that they can spend more time with patients. It's likely that the NHS workforce plan will have a big focus on the role that new technology, and AI in particular, will play in the NHS over the next 10 years. Coming up, Ben explains exactly what AI is, how it's being used currently in the NHS and its potential for the future. He also discusses how AI could help GPs and their teams manage their workloads and what a GP consultation could look like in the future when AI is more established. I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr Ben Brown, who's a GP and also a senior academic GP at the University of Manchester. Ben was this year's winner of the Society for Academic Primary Care's Award for Outstanding Early Career Research. His research area of interest is digital interventions that use artificial intelligence and machine learning to solve problems in healthcare and improve the delivery of healthcare. In particular, he looks at how AI and machine learning can support health professionals and patients to make better decisions. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me. First of all, you know, you describe yourself as a GP and a health informatician. Could you describe your different roles and what they entail? Yeah, I'm a GP in Salford and then obviously so I'm still seeing patients and then the rest of the time I'm at the University of Manchester so I'm based at in the Centre for Health Informatics. So I've been at the University of Manchester as an academic you know since I was training to be a GP which was in 2010. So I did my PhD in health informatics and now I'm kind of doing this research which is combining health informatics with primary care. So health informatics is kind of an umbrella term as much as just as much as artificial intelligence is and people might not know exactly what it entails but Health informatics is kind of multidisciplinary, but it's generally involved with use of data and information to improve healthcare, which sounds quite nebulous. But when I tell you about some of the disciplines that are kind of more involved, it's things like computer science, um, epidemiology. So those kind of traditional academic disciplines, but also there's more applied disciplines like software engineering the kind of more qualitative aspects as well, such as um, usability research, qualitative interviews. So it kind of brings everything together around this aim to use information technology to improve patient care. How did you become interested in this whole area of research? So going back to when I was first started off doing research, I mean, when I was a, a medical student, I was interested in research and actually thought I wanted to be a dermatologist and a plastic surgeon at one point. So I started off doing research in in those areas as a medical student, but then did my general practice rotations and, and, and found that to be much more interesting as a clinical specialty. But when I was a medical student, all these typically see the doctors writing in the clinical notes and, you know, using their pens and you know obviously I just thought that was how things worked in medicine everybody used pen and paper and then I moved to Salford Royal Hospital and did my foundation training what was kind of refreshing there was that it was all computerized 
And then, of course, when I went in and did my general practice rotations, I saw that everything else was even more computerized there. So I just thought that there was ways of doing things in medicine that used computers that weren't being done before. So that kind of led me on the path to do um, kind of health informatics type research. And I guess how I then got into doing artificial intelligence type stuff is that the research that I've done has always been about building things. So can we build software that can make things better for the staff and patients? And my initial research was initially used what we call call it an expert system. So an expert system is where you have a piece of software that can do things, make decisions, create outputs, but is pre-programmed by a human. Technically, that is artificial intelligence. So when we talk about artificial intelligence, what one of the classic definitions and the ones that I use is the ability for computers to simulate the thought processes of humans. And there's there's kind of two main areas of artificial intelligence. So there's what I've kind of just described, which is expert-derived systems, so where it's been pre-programmed by a human. And then there's the other aspect, which has become a lot more prominent in the last few years, which is machine learning. Now, back in the day when, when artificial intelligence was first kind of coined as a term back in the 50s, and the main approach to artificial intelligence was these pre-programmed rules. That's what I was doing in my PhD. So I built this software which could analyze GP health records. And then what it did was it would then come up with suggestions on how patients care could be improved. An easy to understand example was patients who had uncontrolled blood pressure and we'd find all the patients that had uncontrolled blood pressure with then how many are on suboptimal medication. So I'd built all these rules in computer programming language. So I was using it in my own practice, practices in Salford using it, um, and they all really liked it. It was really helpful. But the problem was that it was a real pain to maintain. If you think a guideline changes you have to tweak that code. If you know there's some new medical discovery that violates one of the rules, you've got to go back and change it. Um, if there's a new indicator that comes out you want to look at, you've got to change it. And the, the other problem was that it didn't work. It, although it worked well in most of the situations, it didn't work for every situation. It only worked for situations which you had pre-programmed, obviously. So I just thought that there's an easier way to do this that doesn't involve me having to pre-program everything. And that's where um, I'd made this natural transition, which is exactly what's happened in kind of the research literature is transitioning from this pre-programmed rules to then machine learning. And so the way that machine learning works is you don't need to have someone there who can pre-program rules and also has the knowledge to pre-program rules. And instead of doing that, what you do is you give the machine loads of examples of real world data and then you get it to learn itself from these real world examples about what to do is, is machine learning sort of a form of, of artificial intelligence or are they kind of different things yeah so the way to think about it is you can almost envis envisage a big venn diagram so the biggest circle the big circle is is this is ai and then within the, that circle, you've got two mutually exclusive inner circles, but they're both AI. Um, so you've got one, which is the expert derived rules or the pre-programmed logic, or it's called good old fashioned AI. And then next to it, you, which is separate, you've got machine learning. 
So they're both AI, but they're sub subcategories of AI. And then within machine learning, you've got further subcategories. So um, they can be split up as, for example, there's there's what's called shallow learning, which are kind of um, um, less uh, um, complex or more simple machine learning models and then you've got what's called deep learning which is synonymous with neural networks and and kind of more complex modeling um you've got reinforcement learning which is a type of deep learning and then as well as that you've got you can split it into supervised learning which is where you tell the machine um uh, what it's trying to predict for each example that you give it and then you've got unsupervised learning, which is where you just give the machine the examples, but you don't tell it what it's trying to predict and it just works it out for yourself. So there, there are different subcategories. The thing about AI is, is it's all over the papers at the minute. You know, it's the end of the world's coming because of AI. And, you know, also the government seems quite keen on this whole idea about investing more in AI and making this country a place where we could be kind of world leaders potentially. What examples do we have already of how the NHS is using AI and this sort of machine learning? How has it been used in practice at the moment right now? So the examples that I've seen have been primarily based in secondary care. Some of them that I'm aware of being able to help read scans, so x-rays, looking at chest x-rays, so being able to pick out things there. I've seen some that have been used for analysing CT scans for stroke retinal scans in ophthalmology so very good at what's called computer vision and my understanding of when those technologies are used is that there's such a volume of of that imaging being done is what the machine is doing is trying to pick up time sensitive patients that where things need to be done quickly whereas if it was left to a human it's not that the human wouldn't have picked it up it would have been that the human would have taken some time to get round to looking at that scan I've heard some examples about AI looking at waiting lists. And then the the other one, again, I've read a paper on it. I'm not seeing it in action, is predicting DNAs. Did not attend for hospital clinics. I thought that was quite interesting and potentially something that we could look into uh, for general practice as well. The the thing that I'm aware of, obviously, is the work that that I'm doing in in general practice. So, So what is it that you're actually looking at and researching? And what do you think will be useful for GPs? What I'm currently looking at is AI in online consultations. So what we've developed actually is is an online consultation platform um, that, that uses AI. So the problem with online consultations is that they're, they're designed to increase access, right? So that was the whole reason why why they were initially touted by the government was uh, and the NHS was to improve access to primary care. The issue with online consultations is that because they increase access, there's, there's massive volumes. There is an unanswered research question about whether they increase, you know, whether the increase is, is coming through making the, the access easier or whether it's just uncovering unmet demand. So I won't comment on that. But at the end of the day, there's loads of these online consultations coming through, right? The GP practice needs to be able to deal with them. And so often the problem is that when the request is coming through to you, you don't know which is more urgent than the other. So you might get hundreds through at the same time. And often you've got a receptionist just looking through them one by one. She might get to the bottom of the pile and find that there's one that needs to be dealt with urgently on the same day. And she might not have got round to it straight away or that patient may have been, should have been directed to, to A&E. 
or indeed there's there's patients that have come through that should have been directed to self-care and given some self-care advice so what we've done is we've developed our own platform called patches we've done in collaboration with a couple of commercial companies so um, spectra analytics and um, advanced who do um who do docman um, i'm actually the the clinical lead for patches as well as being the kind of researcher on it so i look after the clinical safety aspects of it and the kind of design um, but what we've done is we've built this this product which is now used in hundreds of gp practices across the country what we did initially when the practices were first using the system was that we um, collect triage decisions that have been made by the practices the patients can type what they want the gp practice to do and they type the other kind of unique thing about patches is that the patients type in free text what they want to do typically in some of these other online consultation systems they the patients are forced to answer these long multiple choice questions that there can be lots and lots of questions that they have to answer which can be quite difficult for the patient but also difficult for the practice because they have to read through them all and often those multiple choice questions don't add any value so what we've done in patches is patients can answer in their own words what they want to uh, ask the gp practice and then what we did was we so we used those as inputs to the ai model um, and then we used as the labeling. So this is what we call supervised learning. So we gave the machine loads of data for in terms of the patient requests. And then we gave the, the machine these labels in terms of the triage decisions that GP practices had made. So when the requests come through to the GP practice, they can make various triage decisions like how urgent is it? Is it an emergency? Should it be dealt with on the same day? Is it urgent? Should it be dealt with in two days or is it routine? What are the clinical topics that that um, associated with it? Did I see this patient face to face, or did I just did I just um, telephone them or send them a message? And we gave the machine those labels as well. And the machine has then been able to work out well. If I get a request from a patient that says this, then it it's urgent or it's an emergency, um, or they need a face to face appointment, or it's talking about depression or whatever. And then based on that, we can we can help the triage process. So if something's emergency, we would advise the patient to maybe go consider calling nine 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 or going to A and E. Um, if if it's urgent, we would flag it in the inbox so the practice knows. Oh, this is one that needs to we need to deal with sooner rather than later. If the AI thinks it's face-to-face, it will be flagged as a face-to-face. So it's always helping to kind of reduce the workload on the practice as well as improving patient safety. It's not about replacing healthcare professionals at all, is it? It's just a, it's another tool to help them make decisions more quickly, more easily. That's basically what you're talking about there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the case in almost all the AI systems that, that I've seen that, that have kind of any level of credibility with it in secondary care and primary care. Those examples we talked about earlier, um, they're not replacing the radiologist reading the scan. They're helping it with patches. What we're trying to do is support the reception staff, the GP practice staff to prioritize their workload and reduce the kind of manual processes that they might normally go through. With this system that you've built and are involved with, are you assessing how it's performed and what happens to the patients and whether it's safe and all of that sort of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So we're in the process now where it's so as a as a system that's kind of um, approved 
for use in the NHS as various, as you can appreciate, various kind of clinical safety standards and um, approval processes we have to go through. The AIs are available to all, all practices. So, so what they do is they go through these early, what we call an early adopter process, where we so we have various stages of testing. The first is we build the model on historical data. Then what we do is we do what we call a prospective um, early adopter analysis. And what we do is we give that we give the AI to a small number of practices, and we test to make sure that it's safe. And then when we're happy that it's safe, we make it more, we make it available to all practices. So we have five different AI modules within patches. So we have the urgency AI, which detects whether something's urgent and flags it to the practice. We have what we call signpost AI, which signposts patients to um, other services based on its urgency. We have what's called an assign AI, where it can assign the request to a clinician or not. Um, uh, based on the, the content of the request and does that automatically. We have the face-to-face AI, which predicts whether a patient needs face-to-face. We have what's called the topic AI, which predicts the topic of a request. And those topics can then be linked to further questions. So, for example, if the AI predicted that a patient was talking about depression, if the practice wanted to, they could get patches to trigger a PHQ-9 questionnaire so the patient would fill that out all that information would be there ready for them. And so there's lots of questionnaires that could be triggered automatically if they wanted. All of those have gone through early adopters except for assign AI and face-to-face AI. And I think we're, we're happy with those now. So I'm just, I just need to kind of write up the clinical evaluations. Before we make them more widely available, we have to formally evaluate that this is not only part of NHS standards, but the other one is the medical device uh, regulation. So the, the, the AIs are medical devices, so we have to comply with that regulation as well. And what we know from our early adopters is that the most important evaluation measure for urgency AI is how good it is at picking up urgent and emergency requests. Um, And that's also called sensitivity or the true positive rate. And what we know from our early adopters is that the urgency AI has a sensitivity of 94%. So for every 100 requests that are truly urgent, the AI will pick up 94 of them. It will miss six of them. So that sounds really good, but also you might be saying, well, why isn't it 100%? And what happens to those six that get missed? So so the first thing to say is obviously nothing's 100%. And even if you were to pre-program rules, you wouldn't get 100%. But also, well, the, the answer is not objectively is that good or bad. It's relative. How good or bad is that compared to what a GP would do, right? So we don't actually know how well GPs do in terms of detecting urgent or emergency cases. So we've been doing, there's nothing in the literature. So we have been doing some research into that. We have some unpublished evidence, which we're um, writing up for publication soon this year, um, shows that GPs are around 85% good at picking up urgent or emergency cases. So if you compare that, AI is, 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 is better. Then the question is, why couldn't it be 100%? And of course, the, way, the only way that you'd get it 100% is just by predicting everything as urgent. But that would be completely useless because everything, if everything's urgent, then nothing's urgent. It's very sensitive, but it will often say things are urgent when they're not urgent. But what we know from our interviews and talking to patients and staff is that they would prefer it that way rather than it missing anything. 
Is there other aspects of general practice where you think AI or machine learning could also help? There's a couple of things to consider. So the first is whenever you're doing stuff that involves clinical decisions, it then makes it a lot more complicated in terms of regulation, burden of proof before things can go can go into clinical practice versus if you're doing stuff that's not really patient facing but would still be helpful. Um, so the, the bar would be a lot lower there. So, so there are kind of two dimensions in terms of what AI could do. So it can either do things that clinicians currently can or humans currently can do, but do them quickly and do them at scale. So, you, you know, you're getting the speed and, and scale into it. Or they can do things that clinicians can't do, predicting that you're going to develop cancer in 10 years' time. Like clinicians, you know, wouldn't, it'd be very difficult for us to do that. There's those two aspects. And then the biggest thing, whenever you develop a system, a digital system or, or any intervention, never mind an AI system, but is, is acceptance and integration into the clinical workflow. And the way that you get that is by, particularly with AI systems, is by the user being, the end user being able to see the value in it. So one might be diagnosis versus prognosis so things that can be easily verifiable are more likely to be accepted so the things that humans can't do are going to be difficult to be accepted particularly if it's something that's going to develop in 10 years time and things that can be done scale and quickly are also going to be accepted more readily because they're making your life easier so i think those are the kind of aspects to look into and if if you can do that it doesn't matter whether it's clinical or administrative I think you'll be getting your acceptance and integration into the GP practice working life. The additional things with AI are, can you trust its predictions? So is, is it actually making trustworthy predictions that are correct? And then there's this other aspect, which is, can you understand the decisions? Now, that, that's quite interesting in terms of what we've found. So being able to know, why has this AI model made this decision? And what we've found, and, and some of the... Um, research around this as well particularly with our when we're using our own system because with patches it doesn't explain why something is urgent or not but gps and patients don't really care they just care that that it makes a good decision so the gps don't care that we can't tell you why it's made that decision as long as it's made a safe decision and they can verify that the decision was correct then they're happy all that patients re- really care about is making sure that they get seen quickly when appropriate. And so to what extent do you see sort of AI transforming the role of the GP in the future? And, and in what way? Do you think it will change the role of the GP at all? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Otherwise, I'm doing it for nothing. <laughs> Going back to this and replacing humans and replacing clinicians, I don't think that's going to happen and it won't happen. What I think we will see is the ability for the AIs to take away the easy stuff, the monotonous stuff, so that we can be left to deal with the stuff that really needs our input. So all all the manual processes. So if we talk about the online consultations, because that's what we've been doing at the moment, the aim for patches is to be able to direct patients away from the GP practice that don't need to come to us. So patients that have got a cough and a cold and could see a pharmacist, they would go there. I wouldn't have to deal with that as a GP. All the admin, the boring admin stuff that we have to do as well, 
I would hope it would be able to help with that. So we did do a project which showed promise and will hopefully pick up soon, but was looking at using AI to process clinical correspondence. And so what we did was we built a model, an AI model, to see if that the AI could work like that admin person and automatically triage the the letters. So we did make some good progress with that. Um, I don't think it was quite up to the standard where we would have liked. Uh, we did so we did use it in my practice. It was helpful to a degree. I think there is work to be done, but I think that is definitely an area right. Things like that. So I think triaging is the key thing here is working out what can be dealt with by GPs and then what can be directed elsewhere. And that's true in clinical and non-clinical stuff. I'm sure that would be transformative to loads of GPs, that though, because I mean, when we look at sort of the data about what people are doing in practices, the amount of time people are spending on admin through the roof over the last sort of five years or so. So I'm sure most GPs would welcome anything that would help. Do you think AI machine learning, do you think it's going to impact on how like a, a normal consultation would work? Say in 10, 20 years time, will GPs, will a patient consultation be quite different because of the technology GPs potentially will have available? So this is where I say something that's going to be played back in 10 to 20 years' time and people are going to see how wrong I was. Flying cars. 2015 and we'll have the hoverboard. So obviously as someone working in the area, I'm an optimist. So I would think that in 10 to 20 years' time, yeah, it would be transformative. So I think we might have things like automated transcription so when i'm consulting with my patients that will i won't have to type any notes because it will be automatically transcribed into the health record and it will be summarized and it will be snowmed coded goodness we wouldn't even need snowmed codes at that point wouldn't that be nice and then maybe some predictions in real time are ongoing based on that data the, the patient is at risk of A, B and C in the future. And here are the things that we could do to reduce that risk. I think ultimately the, the core part of general practice isn't going to change. And that's been proven over time. You want to go and see someone and you want them to talk to you and you want them to examine you with their hands. You know, I think there's obviously been a massive move to remote consulting and online consultations. And they're fantastic for certain things for me as someone who, who is building these systems i often just want to see a patient talk to them so i don't think that's going to change but there will be this augmentation to it and as i say i think it will be more about leaving the difficult decisions to gps and specialists rather than getting them out of the equation ultimately though is you know if you're talking about providing personalized care for people people are individuals aren't they and what's important to them might not be what the computer says you should do so you're always going to need to have doctors to talk to patients about what it means for them and how best to approach a particular situation yeah absolutely and i think some of those where some of that can, will come in is is interpreting the outputs yeah, of those exactly, yeah. predictions and so one of the things talking about personalization i think one of the things that will will come out over that time period of 10 to 20 years will be genetics and, and genetic testing and working out how you would respond what are you at risk of developing in future and then what would be your treatment and how would you respond to that treatment based on your genes there'll probably be stuff around like the micro the gut microbiome as well using ai and ml there's stuff already out there actually i think um, which looks quite interesting and so i think personalization will happen but then 
yeah, at the end of the day, the 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 patient the patient's going to be presented with all these probabilities, um, which are notoriously difficult for members of the public to interpret. So risk we know is difficult to interpret for lay people. The skill then and the requirement for the clinician at that point will be to help them interpret those risks um, and communicate them to the patient to come up with a quote-unquote shared decision. Obviously, there's going to be loads of things coming out for patients, particularly for patients with long-term conditions. I mean, obviously, there's been a big explosion in this whole idea of wearables and things like that. I mean, AI is obviously going to have a big big role to play in helping patients manage their conditions going forward, isn't it? It could be. I mean, the thing with all, with all of these is it's the proof is in the pudding, right? So, and all these ideas sound great, but then there's, you know, obviously as an academic, what I'm interested in, but also as a clinician, but, but as a clinical academic, I guess I'm even more so, is the so what? So it's all nice to... Um, get these nice predictions so even in our own work you know um, we know that the urgency ai and patches picks up 94 percent of urgent requests but you can ask so what does that mean that the patients that are predicted urgently get seen quicker than the ones that shouldn't so that that's what should happen so those are different research questions and those are different require different study designs so that's what we're doing so we, we're we're in the process of setting up a new uh, project which will evaluate whether, in fact, that does happen. So patients that are predicted as urgent by the AI, does that mean they get seen sooner? Because that's what's supposed to happen. And so and I think with any other AI, um, we need the evidence to know that. So you can have your wearable and it can mo- monitor your heart rate. You can predict, I don't know, when you're going to i don't know when you're going to die but a is it is it accurate and it's going to take a long time to work that out and then b b can you do anything about it so is there an action to be taken and then c what's what's the evidence for that action is it going to help so i think there's a lot of hype around as we said at the beginning a lot of hype around ai there's not a lot of there's not a lot of implementation research so there's quite a lot of research around showing how accurate a model is so people will build a model and then show on the historic data oh yeah it's got like 94 percent accuracy but then they'll leave it on the shelf and they won't do anything with it and what you really want to know is can we take that model can we put it into the real world in an intervention and then does that then have an impact and that requires implementation research it requires a certain study design ideally it would be in a randomized controlled trial but that's not always possible but that's what we should be aiming for do you think we're in a good position for the nhs to kind of take advantage of ai and machine learning and are we doing enough research on all of this about how to make it work effectively yes we are in a great position in england because we have some of the best ai researchers in the world uh, in here in the universities but also in in the commercial sector and then at the same time we have a health system which can work you know although it doesn't seem like it um when you're in the thick of it at the the coalface or as a patient we are relatively well integrated we have data sets that can be linked particularly if you compare us to places like the us where data is often in this kind of siloed and and you just can you can only work in one particular area granted those might be big areas but often we can work together more easily in the NHS. All right, well, thank you very much, Ben. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks again to Ben and thanks so much for listening. 
I'm back next week for our regular news review, so please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice and access other resources on our website at gponline.com.